We move into this final time of our series, Check Yourself. And this first week in this series, we looked at Philippians 1, and we looked at how God really called, He affirmed, but He also set the idea of partnership as a benchmark for the church in Philippians 1. The second week, we looked at Philippians 2 to see how Paul really encouraged the church the followers of Jesus who lived individualized and also lived in community, to really check their attitude in the way that they followed Jesus. Last week we looked in Philippians 3, we looked at the ways in which Paul checked the church with the idea of reorienting themselves to three things. The miraculous power of Jesus, right? That they know the dumas, the power of the kingdom. Also we looked at what Paul said he desired to partner with the sufferings of Christ. He wanted to know to take part in Christ's suffering. And then we looked at the third thing that Paul tells the church in Philippi. That even though you're living in Rome, the most important thing is that you see that your commonwealth, your colony is heaven. And that the most important thing to your focus is the citizenship of heaven. The series, check your has been our four-week Sunday morning series through Philippians to encourage us to check ourselves, to make sure that we are actually really, really postured in love, in knowledge, in depth, and in also our gospel fluency. Paul is writing this letter to some followers of Jesus in Philippi, a small, struggling congregation, and he writes to them, and he gives them many benchmarks and checks for us to be better postured as individuals and as a church community because they have done this journey well. And he wants to affirm them and call those things out in him, in them. Now, most of you know a few weeks ago, I used my vacation to go down to focus on some solace, some study, and some saltitude, saltitude in one of my favorite places to rest, relax, and reflect. And as I drove into Ocean City, Maryland, for the first two days, it poured. It stormed. And by the way, that does not interrupt a good beach trip for me. Uh, maybe even more uh, enjoy. Watch the power and the fury of nature around us. The sea was violently angry, and the swelling waves with white caps continued to rush the shore. And it quickly took over the disappearing shoreline. In fact, the jetty, that, that rock formation where the uh, kind of metal structure is on, that usually stands proud and very tall above the waterline. But during the first two days, it seemed to be a disappearing relic under the waves as they rushed the shore. And after spending two days just watching the storm swell and the waves crash and take their revenge on the resort town, I walked into one of my favorite museums, the Ocean City Life-Saving Museum. It sits on the end of the boardwalk on the inlet side of Ocean City, and it seemed to uh, only be fitting to go into this museum on a day in which storms were wreaking havoc because this museum tells the story of not only Ocean City's history, but the stories of the shipwrecks and the storms that have pounded this uh, barrier island for years. The eastern shoreline was once littered 
with life-saving stations. They were about five to ten miles apart. They were uh, kind of before there was lifeguards and coast guard. And there were people called surfmen that worked there. They would live in these stations. They would walk the beaches day and night. And they would kind of have this, this uh, protocol or this, this practice of putting uh, brass batons and brass uh, chains out, and then the next person would catch it, uh, collect it, the next person would put it out, and they would exchange these on their patrols as proof that they had been out in a storm, that they were looking for people who were shipwrecked or storm. Their job was to rescue ships in storms and shipwrecks, but it was also to warn ships of dangers, of sandbars, of storms, of, of riptides. And they would try at all costs to use flares and fires and, and yelling to stop shipwrecks from ever happening in the first place. The story of these early surfmen are now etched into this uh, museum and, and they hang on the walls and they were reminders of the work of these guys. And one of those most famous shipwrecks happened actually over 211 years ago with the San Ignacio de Loya. A surfman reflects. As a surfman, part of my job is to walk the beach at night. I'm always looking for a ship in trouble. The night is so cold and dark. The winds are so strong out of the east and the tides are running high. The blowing sand cuts me as if it's glass. San Ignacio de Loya makes a signal of distress, and I answer at once. Now, another lifesaver, a surfman who responded to that scene, writes this, for the lifesavers, the five-mile journey north is terrible. So from their station to the shipwreck, it is five miles. The surfmen begin to buckle with the oxen, tugging the loaded mortar car with its thousand pounds of weight. And they drag this clogged, torn, and flooded beach. It's several hours before they even arrive at the wreck scene. And the lifesavers are exhausted, but their work has just really begun. The sight of the wretched sailors perched upon the jib of the ship with the waters coiling and leaping below causes the lifesavers to feel renewal in their case. Here the surfmen were exhausted. They had just uh, been up all night. They've pushed themselves through the storm, carrying all of their resources, their rescue things. The snow is deep and the wind is cutting them like glass. It's pushing against them at every step of the way. They finally get there five miles later and they are exhausted. They are exhausted. However, as they, as they look out, as they begin to peer out into the waves and they see the shipwreck just hanging out there off the shore, and they see the sailors on the end of the, of the ship calling and crying for help, they find in themselves their purpose. They find in themselves renewal in their energy. These men had to stay steadfast in their watch. They had to find the energy to constantly push through their exhaustion, and they had to maintain unity in their work. More importantly, they had to find purpose that renewed them in their mission. They had to find purpose that renewed them in their mission. I see this story of these surfmen and the way they responded to storms and shipwrecks and pushed through their exhaustions to be a great parallel to the ending of Paul's letter 
to the church in Philippi. Though this church has, has done well, and we even see Paul's affirmation of this church time and time again. It's one of the churches that he affirms more than any other. And even though we see it time and time again, Paul knows as an apostle, as a leader who is constantly advancing them constantly planting churches, he knows at any point shipwreck and storm can happen. Paul knows that the threat of the storms of persecution and the shipwreck of is around any corner. And especially when a church community is as driven as this church, exhaustion may bring it to a place in which Paul fears. So as Paul begins to bring this letter to a close, there are a few things that he really wants the church of Philippi to get. For me, in my opinion, sometimes paying attention to the way Paul would sign off one of Pauline letters is as important as the way he opened them. There's a lot that is packed into the nine verses we're going to look at this morning. And Paul isn't just signing off his letter, miss you, love you. He isn't sending a postcard saying, wish you were here. Paul knows that this community, this church community, had to stay steadfast in their watch. They had to find the energy to push through their exhaustion. They had to maintain unity in their work and find this purpose, this deeper drive that would renew them in their mission. This morning in our series, Check Yourself, as we bring it to a close, we're going to be looking at this idea of remaining steadfast. We'll be spending our time talking about steadfast this morning from the last chapter of Philippians, Philippians, uh, Philippians 4, 1 through 9. You find the text on the overhead screen. And you can follow along in your Bible as well if you see it. Just as a reminder before we read the passage, what's happening in this, the kind of context that's surrounding Philippians, I think it's important that we kind of visit some of the groundwork we laid in week one only because we're going to see Paul come full circle with it. The church in Philippi, Philippi has received word that Paul, this guy that had invested time in them, who has helped them get started, this guy that's planted them, has worked alongside their initial kind of gathering, has now been imprisoned. Their friend. He's now, he's in jail. And, and at this time, being in jail wasn't posh. Like, there was not a lot of resources for you. Rome didn't feed you. Rome didn't give you blankets. If you wanted comforts, if you wanted foods while you were in jail, you depended on the support of your family. You depended on the resources of your friends. So this church who has been really touched by Paul, and one of these churches that's really understood what Paul is trying to do for the gospel message, began money for him. And, and in addition to that, they send money to Paul so that he can have the resources he needs so he can continue his work. But they also send to him Ephroditus. And Ephroditus is a church worker in this small struggling church in Philippi. And he shows up and he gives Paul presents. He says, I too am here to serve you. I'm here to work alongside you. Paul is filled with joy. As this church has bought in, he sees their gift as a reality that they are getting the mission. They are partnering with him for the sake of the gospel. He finds this church whom he deeply loves and has planted on his second ministry trip to now be making his continued ministry possible. 
what's odd, the buy-in we see from this church is a hurting congregation. They aren't one of the bigger ones. They aren't Corinth. They live in a town where the town itself is in a building process. There isn't a lot of life happening. And we see that Philippi, this town that's named after Alexander its dad, was occupied in a strategic location. It would become a stop on Rome's greatest road that would run from Asia all the way to Europe. And uh, this, this town of Philippi was not Rome proper, but every step of the way they wanted to be Rome proper. They were the little brother of Rome. They loved the way Rome looked. They loved the way Rome thought. They, lo- the, they loved the way that Rome talked about philosophy. Point that they could, they would look to mirror their own culture to be just like Rome. This church is on the border of, of the Asian countries in Europe, and it is actually the first European church. And as a result, because this was mostly European, there is little Jewish influence. There are hardly any Jewish foundations and founders. So we don't see the arguments that we see in other churches here between Gentile and Jew, because in all honesty, their numbers are smaller and there's less influence from the Jewish upbringing. Now, while Ephratus has been working with Paul, and Paul's in jail, Ephratus becomes sick, and, and he becomes ill, and, and deathly ill, to be honest. And so, after he spent some time recovering with Paul, and he gets better, Paul decides that he is going to send a letter back to Philippi. He's going to send a letter to the Philippian church and say, you guys are amazing. You have partnered with me. I love you. You have done so good. And that letter, that thank you letter, is this letter of Philippians. And he sends it, along with his love, with Ephratus back to Rome. Back to this Roman colony. And, and interesting, at this time, it's just important to notice that there's huge shifts happening. This book, the letter of Philippians, was written about 62 AD. Nero is not emperor yet, but he's beginning to rise to power. He's sitting on council, and he has just Rome's amazing bathhouse kind of uh, protocols and, and architecture, only to find at the same time, 62 AD, one of the first great earthquakes of Rome destroys life as they know it. The work of man begins to become unraveled or in reflecting even in the church. Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters... You whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yoda and I plead with Sintuke to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is 
noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And then the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you've followed Jesus for some time or grew up in the church, often when a verse stands out to us, we find ourselves underlining it or highlighting it. And I'm sure that in this section of Philippians, there are a few of those for you. There are some verses in here that are super familiar. They are super encouraging. They're full of deep richness in this passage. That deep richness is because Paul's writing from prison. He's mostly... Stuck in a cell, beginning to think about his life, the impact of his life, his investments, the things that he needs to do yet before his time is up. He doesn't want his investment with this church to return void. He doesn't want to see it cancel out. He doesn't want to see it go null. Paul wants to write to this church to encourage him to stay firm. Paul sends this letter to Philippi and kind of spends his last words in ink in this letter to lay footers for this church community that say, stay fed fast in your watch. Find the energy to push on through your exhaustion. Maintain unity in your work and find purpose that renews you in your mission. First, we're going to look at how Paul calls them to stay steadfast and how he encourages them in their place of exhaustion. Church in Philippi didn't have much the road to Rome, the great road, was being built, but there wasn't a lot of business happening yet in Philippi. They weren't a rich congregation, but they did what they could to support Paul. And they were constantly on the forefront. They watched Paul as an apostle, and they were constantly trying to gain new ground for the kingdom. And they were reaching a point of exhaustion. As Rome continued to grow up in this small colony, the culture of Rome, they found themselves oppressed they looked outside and realized that they were much different than the culture of Rome around them. So we see that Paul creatively implements a culture of honor and encouragement as a benchmark for the church by first modeling it for the church in Philippi. Throughout this series, we've seen how they have really grabbed a hold of the gospel. They've really grabbed a hold of its mission in their neighborhood and in the world. Time and time again, we see Paul's affirmation of their work. Time and time again, we also see that Paul invested years of effort into planning and discipling this church in Philippi. Now he stands back in jail, reflecting on what's happening, and he beams like a parent looking at his child. He is proud to see them standing on their own and doing well. And so Paul takes this opportunity to speak life and energy over them and in this season of exhaustion and trial. So we see even in his closing of this letter, Paul finds a way to honor them and encourage them with the hope of setting an example for them. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord this way, dear friends. His churches become his family. They become his friends. Paul misses them. He shares his love for them, but he also longs for them. And as he reflects from his jail cell in Rome, he tells the church in Philippi that they are his joy and his crown. What an honor and favor. 
The word for joy there, car, means a people who are one's joy. It just doesn't mean that he sees them as happiness or joyful. When he looks at them, the word car there means that he sees them as his people, his family. They bring him joy. They are his heritage. And more interesting, the word for crown there, we automatically kind of think of the thing we pick up at Burger King and put on our head and pretend to be a king, right? The word for crown there actually is a much deeper and richer word. It rather spoke of a medal that was given to an Olympian or an athlete for winning a prize. Now, throughout Philippians, as we've read it, we've seen Paul use this same imagery time and time again. He tells them that they are to be competitors, that they are to uh, run the race, that they are to press on. And here again, Paul uses this word, the word that we translate as crown, to speak that this congregation, this church community in which he's invested his time, is literally his reward. In this passage, Paul also uses encouragement as a way of centering and calling the church to stay steadfast in their purpose. The whole book has been decorated with this imagery, pressing on, competing for, running the race. And then Paul says to them, I encourage you to stand firm in the Lord in this way. He affirms what they are doing. He isn't pointing out error. He isn't instructing them in a moment. Instead, he speaks life over them. Stay in this way. The word for stand firm there, or stay, is actually a fun word. It's stayco. Say it with me. Stayco. What's the root of that word? Stay. Right? Stay with what you're doing. Stand firm in what I've already planted in you. Stay firm with what you're doing. You're doing well, but stand firm, steadfast in the midst of that. Next, Paul says, and Paul uses a well-known situation of tension in their community to make call, a call for maintaining unity together. We read Paul as he writes, I plead with Yoda, and I plead too with Suntuke to be of the same mind in the Lord. N.T. Wright reflects this passage. Two women in Philippi, Yoda and Suntuke, had have had a falling out. And it's appealing publicly for them to come to an agreement. The present disagreement between Yoda and Suntuke must have been going on for some time since Paul must have heard about it from Euphrates, right? So word has gotten back to Paul. This isn't just some people having a disagreement in a parking lot. It isn't somebody just disagreeing what was said at the pulpit. These are two well-respected, honorable women who have had a falling out with each other, who have now created tension, and it is traveled all the way to Rome proper to where Paul is in prison. Ironically, when Paul is telling them to be of the same mind, he's actually referring to a challenge that he gave the whole church just a few chapters earlier. In Philippians 2, we read this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, make his joy, Paul's joy complete, by being like minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and the mind. Paul says, if you have any reason to have joy in Christ, then do me a favor. Give me some joy by me knowing that you guys aren't headed towards a shipwreck. Have one mind, have one love, have one spirit together. 
Paul knows that this situation, in which he sees publicly destroying the church, could shipwreck the church if it goes unchecked. So Paul, using his relational equity, his investment in them, he walks the shoreline trying to get them back together. It's important to know that the church in Philippi was started on Paul's second ministry into the area. And it was formed by a group of praying women. And we read about that in Acts 16. Most likely, these two women were honorable leaders that had been there since the beginning. We read in Acts 16. From where we traveled to Philippi, and this is Luke writing about him and Paul's journey, a Roman colony, we stayed there. Even even Luke points out, hey guys, you need to understand Philippi is Roman all the way. We stayed there for several days. On Sabbath, we went outside to the city gate to the river. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of them who was listening was a woman named Lydia. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. The church in Philippi is actually planted and first gathered by praying women who gathered with Lydia. And they are responding to the gospel message. And by all accounts, this church is even led and gathered by women for its first few years. Ironically, despite if they were pastors or not, if you would look at the way Paul released women in his time, it was still much more affirming and free than what Rome itself had given women, right? Unless you were in the colony of Sparta, women in Rome were not allowed to own property. But guess what? Paul allowed women to own property. We might look at Paul's words about uh, pastoring and, and, and kind of wrestle through that interpretation, but regardless, Paul allowed women to have position. He gave them titles, deaconesses. In pagan churches at the time, Rome wasn't allowing women to lead in any matter. These women have brought about the church in Philippi, and Paul did not want this to now be their demise. Paul says, rather, yes, I ask you, my true companion. So this letter would have been read in public. Maybe even Euphrates himself would have stood in front of the church as they were gathered and read it. He says, yes, I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. Now, who is Paul's true companion? Most likely, it's Euphrates. It's this guy that's been serving him that is now carrying this letter back, and he's now being encouraged to help. And the word for help there actually means assist these women. Paul goes on to say that these women have contended at his side. They have wrestled, the word means, in community with him. They've elbow grease. They rolled up their sleeves and worked alongside equal to Paul. The idea in the original text implies that they wrestled with him and worked for the sake of the gospel. These women have brought about the church at Philippi, and they were not to be ignored or pushed out in their disagreement. Rather, Euphrates, this other respected church leader, is told to serve them. And in doing so, Paul sets up a healthy view of partnering with their leadership, even when they differ on the importance, and he also sets up, I should say, the importance of still serving each other with honor in their differences. And lastly, then, Paul gives them the benchmarks or the rhythms of purpose that will renew them in mission and their spiritual focus despite their exhaustion in the storms. Paul moves on from problem to purpose. 
Paul intends to leave them with the foundations and the benchmarks for the spiritual journey of the church and their lives as individuals. Foundations that will weather storms, survive shipwrecks, and prevent them even in the first place. Paul writes, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always, right? Then he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble. Then he ends with this, whatever you've learned or received from me, whatever you've seen me do, whatever you've seen me put into practice, do those things, and, and trust me, you'll be fine. There are key pieces that we need to analyze in this last few verses from Paul. These renewing rhythms that Paul gives them to find purpose in their mission. And the first one is this idea of praise. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. The word for praise there actually means to praise with exceeding praise. To be over the top, to be exuberant. And that isn't just enough to say that once, that word. Paul actually uses that word then twice. He really wants them to understand. This isn't just about singing songs to God on Sunday. It isn't just about giving him credit before meals. In all honesty, there is something greater that comes from our identity. Now, it's even more interesting that the word he uses there implies something that means nothing to us, but to the culture that would have been reading it, they would have gotten this. In Roman culture, especially in this colony of Philippi, the idea that of praise was a really big thing. It had much imagery to it. They were used to organizing these great festivals and games and competitions, shows, theater. They did this for fun. They did it for their gods. They did it for their traditions. And even more so, they did it for their half-god, Caesar, emperor of Rome. But here, even more so, they were called, as the church, to be loud with their praise, that they were to set up in opposition to all of that, all that hustle and bustle that goes around the empire. They were to remove themselves from it and give that same effort, that same praise, not at all to the country, not at all to the pride of the empire, but to God. Paul challenges the church to be loud with their praise. Showing that Jesus alone is Lord. In a time where everyone was saying, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, and celebrating, the church was to match with their proclamation, Jesus is Lord. As a community, they were to reflect this idea of praise in the culture they create. And it should be a unifying experience. It should be an identifying experience. Next, Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, it's interesting that Paul mentions the word gentleness right after he talks about the word praise that you need to be known for your loudness but i also want you to be known for your gentleness right it's an interesting tension the word for gentleness actually also implies patience paul has spent some of his last ink on making sure that they get that even though i want you to be a people passionate for worship you also need to be a people who are Gentle, And sometimes when we get passionate, when we praise, when we have really good encounters with the presence of God, what happens? We get amped up, we get energized, and we kind of can bulldoze out into the world. Yes? Paul says, well, I want your culture to be one of rejoicing. In all honesty, what I want you to be known for in the neighborhood is your gentleness, for your patience. I mean, after all, you showed great kind of support and gentleness to me as I've been in jail and you worked with me. 
you guys have shown great gentleness to each other, and now you're trying to figure that out with, with Sintulke and Euodia. But in all honesty, I don't want it just to be known to each other. I want you to be known in the neighborhood by your gentleness. And then Paul says, the church also needs to be confident in who they are. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So far, this church has had a great understanding of who they are. But Paul wants them to respond to these situations, his imprisonments, the changing culture around them, overflowing from moments with God and not their emotions. Now, it's interesting to think about this idea of confidence, that they should be moving from this place of peace with the Lord, a deep peace that goes beyond everything, even in the middle of shipwrecks and storms. Because Roman culture, as N.T. Wright will explain in his quote, was known for its anxiety. It was not a place of peace, and it actually had little to do with the earthquakes that were happening all the time. Anxiety was a way of life. Now, those of us who struggle with anxiety, right, how many of you would like to see the whole culture be a way of life of anxiety, right? Anxiety was a way of life for many in the ancient pagan world. With so many gods and goddesses, hundreds if not thousands, all of them were potentially out to get you for some offense that you might not even know about. But there was certainty now with this God, who was ultimately in control, that he would always want to hear prayers and kind of, uh, he would want to hear and answer prayers on any topic. The more you seek after God with praise, live by gentleness, the more you approach him with confidence, the more you will find him, Paul says, protecting your hearts and minds. Paul points them back to this all-knowing reality. Jesus is Lord. He's accessible to all, and his peace will fulfill us if we turn to him. Following Jesus brings peace. Following the world brings anxiety. It's interesting that Paul also uses the language for guard as a Roman garrison. And they would have been famous around the colony of Philippi. Protecting your heart and mind, he says, with a garrison, that the peace of God will protect your heart and mind like a hundred armed soldiers. Paul shows the power of the Holy Spirit when we pursue these things as churches and individuals. It's in our mind that anxiety forms, and it's in our heart that we find ourselves pulled away from temptations. And these pursuits, in which Paul's about to name, become a secret path to contentment from these things. They guard our hearts and minds. Lastly, Paul tells the church how to experience the peace of God. He gives them what to set their minds on. They are the things that take time, effort, and focus. Or as F.F. Bruce says, these are the things that have to become the occupations of your mind. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. These things need to camp out and occupy your mind permanently and presently and perfectly. These are the things that our natural selves never seem to want to focus on. They're a bigger picture of ourselves. They take the reality off us and they train us to be focused more on the things of God. They say that winning a battle is half winning the battle in your mind, right? To, to argue yourself to even take the first step. Well, Paul gives them this trail this journey to begin to focus them on that which is God. 
F.F. Bruce says, disciplined minds will always find the path of daily life set in the teaching and practice of Paul himself. And in this path, they will prove the reality of the presence of God from whom all peace comes. I want you to be known in this violent time of Rome because you are so different and you are ruled by rejoicing in Jesus as Lord and the peace of God. Focus on these things. You will find them keeping you tranquil in the peace of God. They will keep you safe from storm, from shipwreck, and guard you from those realities beforehand. As the worship team comes forward, I encourage you to think about this. We as a church, if we were to listen to what Paul writes here, we must... We must model and create a culture of honor and encouragement. We must desire unity, but also seek honor and service in our differences. Praise, gentleness, and a trusting confidence in the Lord should be that which defines our community as the peace we experience individually by living out these rhythms renew us in our purpose. Paul knows that this church had to stay steadfast in their exhaustion, maintain unity, and find purpose. 